Hey podcast listeners, it's Nathan here. This episode will be a little bit different than what you're used to hearing from this feed. A member of my congregation named Christine Walker is taking seminary classes, and for one of her classes, she was asked to interview somebody who's in pastoral ministry. And I saw the list of questions. There's 10 questions. I thought they were great. So I asked her if I could just record the conversation to include here on this podcast. She thought that was a fun idea. So what you're about to hear is the interview with Christine and myself took place in my office here at Stanwich Church. And hey, while I have your attention, if you're a regular subscriber to this podcast, it would be great if you could just go on to iTunes and leave a rating. That will help other people find this podcast and hear God's word through it. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. Well, thank you, Nathan. You're welcome. I appreciate you um, making time for this oral interview for my church from Reformation, church history from every Reformation class. So it's church history from the Reformation to present kind of? Yes. Okay. Yeah, to it. current times. Cool. For this interview, um, the seminary has prepared 10 questions that I will ask you. Um, and I just really appreciate you uh, sharing your answers with me. My pleasure. I love it. Great. Great. Well, to get started, the first question is, when did you first sense that God was calling you into your ministry, and what role, if any, did those around you, being family, mentors, friends, etc., play in your positive response to that call? It's a great question. This is something I think about a lot. I remember my first call from God, where I realized that I was called potentially to be a pastor. I was in the second grade. I was seven years old. And Mrs. Lucas was the teacher. And she was asking, I think we all went around the room, you know, and said what we wanted to be when we grew up. And it was, you know, it was like firemen and doctors and stuff like that. And it came to me and I looked at her and I said, I want to be a pastor. And her response is really the memorable moment because she looked at me and her face changed it kind of lit up with a smile and she said Nathan I'm tickled pink which is you know something a second grade teacher would say and it, but it was her it was her kind of affirming response that um, made me think I am going to be a pastor you know and um, the second part of your question is you know what people were influencing it positively I look back on that and, you know, you could psychoanalyze that moment and say, well, little seven-year-old Nathan had a grandfather who was a pastor. My dad at the time worked in the church and worked for most of my upbringing in the church. He wasn't an ordained minister, but he was a, what they call a director of discipleship, like a non-ordained pastor. He, he is a pastor, right? Like he got it from his dad. I got it from him. And uh, we were also really close with our uh, church pastor. He was a family friend. His name was Larry Slings. And I had this very warm, wonderful relationship with him. I really looked up to him. So you could psychoanalyze it and say, well, you know, there was this constellation of men in my life that when I looked up, I saw these guys and I admired them and, and they meant a lot to me and they were pastors. So that's why I wanted to be a pastor. But I think also that the Holy Spirit was calling me in that moment. You know, it wasn't just, you know, the, the psychological reality of me thinking pastors were cool. That certainly helped. I had a category in my mind for what an adult um, version of myself might look like. And all the, the men I admired in my life, many of the men I admired in my life were pastors. You know, if they were lawyers, I might have had a different answer. I'm not sure. 
But I do sense that in that moment in the second grade classroom, I was being called. So then from, from that point on, I kind of always had in the back of my mind that that's where I was going with my life. And, you know, high school and college, there was a moment in college where I began questioning it a little bit, where I wondered maybe I'm being called to be an actor because I was involved in the theater, very involved in the theater. And I had some of my professors really encouraging me to think about a career in acting. And so I was like, huh, well, maybe I've just been confused my whole life. Maybe this whole pastor thing was close, but I was, I'm really called to be an actor. But then when it came time to think about the end of my time was at Hope College, um, I was talking with my theology professors and I was talking with my theater professors. And each one was saying, you know, different things. You should go to New York and get an actor, acting internship, or whatever. And my theology professors were saying, I think seminary is the next step for you. And when I started thinking about the two options, one made my heart sing and one made me kind of terrified. And the one that made my heart sing was seminary. I just couldn't wait to go take theology classes. And, you know, I had some people saying to me, like, that's weird. If you love that idea, you probably are called to do that. So I went. And all along the way, I had the fortune of, as I mentioned, being in a family where being a pastor was not a strange thing. It was a totally normal thing. In fact, it's it's probably a, a very valued thing in my family. So there was nothing but encouragement from my family and from my community. I, I went to a, a Christian school, K through 12, and always belonged to a church and just had amazing mentors. I look back on my life and I realized God had just, I mean, ridiculously awesome mentors lined up for me. My high school Bible teacher was a guy named Ray Vanderlaan, who a lot of people know about because they see his Israel DVDs. And I had him for four years of Bible in high school. Went to Israel with him when I was a junior. And, you know, when I got to Hope College, there was a chaplain there named Ben Patterson. And actually, he was right here at Sandwich the other day. And um, Chuck Davis met him, and Chuck was like, I've read your books. And and I said, yeah, he was my mentor in college. And, and Mike Gatliff came to me, and he goes, you had Ray Vanderlaan in high school, Ben Patterson in college? He goes, he goes, brother, you were born on third base spiritually. I was like, no kidding. But I realized this is a long answer to your question, but it, but it requires all these details because it's a big part of my call. It's not just that God called me early, you know? He called me often as well. And I look at this amazing legacy of mostly men who mentored me all those years. And I think, man, if I didn't turn that into a lifelong calling in pastoral ministry, I would have wasted a lot of the Lord's resources that he poured into me for the first few decades of my life. And he still does, by the way. I have Chuck Davis as a mentor now. You know, and I've learned so much from him. So long long answer to your question, but I would say my calling came early and often and continue. The Lord continues to call me to himself and to um, into this particular role in the in the kingdom. That's a really interesting story. Thank you for sharing that one. You're one welcome. just small follow up to it. Yeah. Did your parents know that you shared I don't I don't remember when I started talking about it you know I didn't go home that day and announce it right um, but certainly over the years when I grew up in a household where calling was talked about plus I'm the youngest of four kids so my older siblings were heading off to college and thinking about career and stuff so it was a conversation in the home so I don't know at what point middle school high school maybe I probably started saying you know like I think I'm gonna be a pastor so they heard it you know when I was young 
but you know, I don't remember announcing it that day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> okay, our second question is, what have been some of your greatest satisfactions in ministry? Greatest satisfactions, I'd have to say my favorite part of ministry is when I see the spiritual light bulb going on above someone's face. And that's 10 times out of 10 when they've got some revelation from the Word. So we're sitting in a Bible study and we're reading a verse and all of a sudden I see someone just get this changed look on their face and they have that aha and they get it. The coin drops, the gospel lands. And I've seen it, you know, you learn to spot it when you're in ministry. And when I was doing youth ministry in New York City, I had breakfast Bible studies with middle school boys in private schools, you know, so there they arrived in these diners with their blue blazers and ties and, and we would open the Bible together at, you know, Jackson Hole Diner on the Upper East Side with all the noise and waitresses and traffic and like just kind of a crazy scene, we would hunker down and open the word, you know, sort of against all odds. And every once in a while you'd see a kid just light up to get it. And that's the Holy Spirit's presence, you know. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would do a couple of things. He said he would um, um, lead you into all truth. He would glorify the Son. And he would convict the world of sin. And those three things I have seen the Holy Spirit doing over and over and over again. That first one, lead you into all truths, is the one I'm talking about right now. Where you see, and now, of course, when I stand in the pulpit and preach, it's so much fun. I feel like a spectator. You know, it's like there's 300 people looking at me, but I'm watching them because I'm looking for that spiritual light bulb to go. And when it happens, it's unmistakable. So that is the most satisfying thing for me in ministry, is just watching the Holy Spirit use the word to open hearts and minds. Great. So almost like a participation in what the Holy Spirit's doing. To oh, totally. To... Yeah, and let me just say this while we're while you since you said that, I do feel like a participant in especially in the preaching moment. It's not Nathan Hart preaching. We use this phrase now as a preaching team here at Sandwich, where we remind ourselves that there's always a better preacher in the room. You know, it's not Chuck, it's not Jackie, it's not David, it's not Nathan, it's the Holy Spirit. And to once you recognize that as a preacher, the pressure's off of you. The only thing you're doing is creating an atmosphere in which the better preacher can communicate. You know, when you preach a sermon and you're shaking hands outside the door as people are leaving, and they say, oh, thank you, Pastor, for preaching that message. I especially liked how um, you said I should go reconcile with my dad. You know, and you just have to smile because you're like, I never said that. The better preacher was was communicating. Praise God, you know? And so it's just humbly being, as you said, a participant in the Holy Spirit's work. And then you get to just really watch. And it's as according to your question, it's, it's very satisfying. Great. So kind of flipping the coin now, what have been some of the greatest disappointments in ministry? Mm-hmm. When I think of that, um, the first thing that comes to mind is you know, when you're in a church, you're in a workplace. You know, Monday through Saturday, it's a workplace with employment issues and with vision casting and strategy and, you know, spreadsheets and copy machines. And, like, it's, it's a workplace. You know, people often, they come and they experience church on a Sunday morning and they think that's what it's like 
24 seven, but there's a, there's a shop to run, you know? And so for my disappointments in ministry, I'd say it's, it relates to when I was younger and I had staff and I didn't know everything, I mean, who knows everything that there is to know about managing staff, but I certainly knew less then than I knew now. And um, I wasn't a great staff manager. Um, I, I've really learned a ton about that over the years. And uh, I think there's a couple of points along the way when I was in my 20s managing people when I, I hurt them. You know, I didn't, I wasn't a great boss, especially when it came time when you realize, you know, this person can't work here anymore. There's a way to go about that process with um, dignity and with respect and with love. And there's a way to go about it that actually wounds the person. And I have one example, I've written about this in a chapter in that book called Leadership Wisdom, where I just kind of spelled that out, everything I learned. You know, a lot of times you learn from doing things wrongly. And there was a moment in my uh, 20s where I let somebody go and I, and I wounded her in the process. So she and I, by the grace of God, have had an awesome reconciliation and we're brother and sister in Christ now and it's, it's beautiful. But it still is a disappointment, you know. So that's definitely the first thing that comes to mind. I really can't think of many other disappointments. I, I really feel thrilled every day, all day, to have this calling. Um, you know, the only other, I guess, measurement of disappointment is when sometimes there's people who you're ministering to who don't feel as invested in the kingdom as you are. And that can be frustrating, you know. I don't experience that very much here at Stanwich because we have several hundred people who are all in. And it's, you know, just trying to keep up with them sometimes as a pastor. But I've been in situations where I was just like kind of pulling my hair out, wondering if people were going to show up to these really cool ministry things I was planning, you know. Uh, so that can be disappointing if there's people who aren't as on board as we pastors are. But again, here at Stanwich, I really don't feel that. So, great. Um, that makes a lot of sense, and I think that just hearing that uh, we learn from our mistakes, mm -hmm. you know, and so those can be disappointments. Yeah. But how they, it's great to hear too that it's kind of restored, mm -hmm. you know, over time. Yeah. Um, in, in keeping up with the Stanwich congregation. Um, what resources have you found most helpful in nourishing your own spiritual life? Yeah, uh, I hope this doesn't sound um, kind of sanctimonious or even trite, but number one resource is God. It's the Holy Spirit. You know, like that thing I was talking about earlier, when the Holy Spirit makes the Word come alive, like He's the number one resource for my ministry. You know, again, if there wasn't that better preacher in the room, for example, in the preaching moment, then it would just be Nathan's skill in public speaking. You know, mm -hmm. and how can I persuade this group of people to hear my argument or whatever? That that sounds exhausting to me. Because then it's all on me. And am I gonna do this well enough? You know, last Sunday, for example, I didn't feel great about my sermon. Got done and I thought immediately of a couple of missed opportunities that I had. Um, however, I did sense the Holy Spirit was flowing. You know, you can tell that as a preacher. So I get down from the pulpit, and um, I was like, meh, that was an okay sermon. Well, the response over the next, like, 24 hours, texts, emails, phone calls, people stopping by, 
that sermon ministered to me so much. Thank you. I can't wait to share it with my son-in-law or whatever, like all these things. So I thought, wow, praise God that he is the greatest resource. Because I, from a human perspective, it was probably an okay sermon. But if the Holy Spirit is my main resource, then he's going to do great things with it. Um, so th- that's answer number one. Answer number two is, you know, I'm sitting here next to this giant bookshelf with all these books. I'm a constant reader. Uh, I had got great advice from my childhood pastor, Larry Slings, who I mentioned earlier, when he actually preached at my ordination service in uh, 2006. And one of the things he charged me with during his homily was, he said, never stop reading. He said, I can tell the pastors out there who stopped reading. And it's a big difference. So I, I took that and remembered it. So I'm constantly reading. And occasionally I read authors that I know I don't necessarily agree with theologically. You know, I just read a Rob Bell book and a Richard Rohr book. Now, these guys aren't in the same camp theologically as I am. But I thought, you know what? I've been reading like the same reformed guys over and over and over again for years. I want to just, you know, and, you know, I'm reading, I'm reading a Rob Bell book and I'm, you know, on many pages, I'm like, wow, this is really good stuff. And then I get to a page and I'm like, oh, I can't believe he said that. He's so wrong. But I need that. You know, I need to broaden my perspective as much as I can. So I'm constantly reading, um, but relying on the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, the third way I would answer that is resources are uh, human resources. You know, we have a great team here. It's a very healthy team. We rely on each other. We call each other out on things. We hold each other accountable. But having, uh, hopefully, some humility to say, hey, Chuck, hey, Jackie, hey, David, put your eyes on this with me, will you? And see if you're sensing the same thing I might be sensing. And if not, I'm wrong. I'll drop it. Uh, But if I'm right, let's move forward in this direction. Great. Yeah, that's interesting because it doesn't always work. The Holy Spirit doesn't always work the way, you know, we think it might go. Yeah, totally. just... When, as you're talking to the one thing that came I thought of too of just being a, a member of this church is how well modeled it is for us um, by the pastoral staff uh, if being in the word and through mm-hmm. prayer and how uh, you know the the pastoral staff will get together before every mm-hmm. worship service to just pray mm-hmm. and um, just knowing how much you guys are in the word too mm-hmm. to help um, just refresh, mm-hmm. you know, your, and keep your spiritual life yeah. anew for what comes in ministry as well. So you're saying as a parishioner that um, that's an inspiration for you. You say, oh, I can live my life that way too. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, that, that allows you to do, you know, all these things that you, that Sandwich mm-hmm. does in ministry. Yeah. Uh, our, fifth, our fifth question is, what period of church history in your estimation most resembles your own? I'm tempted to say first century, um, and I'll tell you why, and then I'm also going to disagree with myself, but (laughs) that's how my brain works. The reason I say first century is I've been encouraging people recently to think about the first century. And the reason for that is, you know, as you know, we're at this moment in history where we have this election here in the U.S., and there's a lot of anxiety about the United States, a lot of anxiety about who's in the White House. And um, I see a lot of Christians either shaking in their boots, freaking out, or um, saying, you know, we've got to get the right person back in the White House, or even people saying, oh, thank God, now we have the right person in the White House. And I'm looking at that going, you know, thinking about who's in the White House is not our problem. You know, and I say, I like to say this to people, I like to say, your local church is more powerful than the White House. And usually people are like, what? What? 
I'm like, yeah, your local church is more powerful than the White House to, to change the world. Think about it. And then take them back to the first century. And, you know, were James and Peter and John and Paul worried about, you know, getting someone in Nero's seat? Let's, let's overthrow Nero and put a Christian. No. They were going up. They were doing local church. They were advancing the gospel. They were healing in Jesus' name. And it changed the world. A couple hundred years later, yeah, the emperor converted to Christianity. And that actually starts, that's when things started getting complicated for the church, frankly. Uh, before then, the movement that began when Jesus rose from the dead was powerful, but not through the typical worldly channels of power. And so that's why I say, you know, the first century resembles our own because we're in this position, I think, at least in the United States, where we're hopefully beginning to think, all right, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be working on political power. We should just be doing our thing as Christians, loving people differently than anyone else in the world would love people, serving, proclaiming the gospel, and not worrying about who's in the White House. And I, I so, but I want to disagree with it because we're we're not anything like the first century, frankly. Really, you know, we still, you know, we still have in many ways the foundations of, if not a Christian country at least one that um, still does have the building blocks, the foundation of building blocks of ethical laws that are based on biblical laws. Uh, so I can't speak for the Eastern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere to your question, but at least here in the United States, those are the things I'm thinking about. I don't think we're just like we were in the first century. We're not being thrown into the city square and martyred. You know, We're not being cast before lions for the entertainment of, of you know, the audience and anything like that. But we do, we are hopefully starting to think, you know what? Let's go underground like we began 2,000 years ago. And let's change the world through just being Christians in the world. Yeah, I think that's very powerful. Um, so what role, if any, have the people, events, and issues of Christian history played in shaping your ministry? So the people of church history, I mean, the, the first people I think of in church history are the early apostles, you know. The, I like to watch the men and women in the Gospels, the men and women in the book of Acts, the men and women in the, in the early churches that Paul wrote his letters to, you know. Um, they are, firstly, my inspiration. This goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where it's the Word of God, you know, it's the Holy Spirit making the Word alive. So... Those early apostles are my inspiration. They are my examples. And then, you know, of course, the reformers are huge for me. Martin Luther, John Calvin, then um, you know, a whole... So I would say, to put it in a category, theologians. That's I'm kind of a cerebral person, so it's the theologians. You know, you might interview another person and they might say the mystics, you know, or the martyrs. But for me, it's, it's the, the mostly men but some women who write theologically. I love just swimming around in an old theology book and just interacting with those thoughts, you know. So those shape my ministry for sure. That's cool. Do you have any specific one that you would recommend to me that to read? You know, you might pick up a Martin Luther book. Like pick up one of his commentaries or pick up um, some of his systematic theology books. And just dive in 
you know, and see how it goes. Uh, he is so, I think he has a, for a person who wrote 400 years ago, I find a lot of the way he puts a thought together, he puts a sentence or a paragraph together, very fresh and relevant. And, you know, if you just start dissecting, if you start parsing a sentence of his, you're like, man, this would preach today. Uh-huh. So I, I love Martin Luther. Um, you know, I'm slightly different than him theologically. I'm a little bit more in the John Calvin camp, mm-hmm. but I still love Luther. Great. Good. I'll try that. Cool. Um, if you had the opportunity to speak to a group of seminary students, what would you want them to know about ministry? I would say run as far away <laughs> as you can. No, I'm totally kidding. Yeah, no, I, that's a great question because sometimes I do picture myself back in seminary. And I'm like, what do I wish they had told me? And, I, and the number one, the first thing is the majority of what you're about to experience in pastoral ministry, you're not learning here at seminary. Like, there's so much that you can't be taught in seminary. And, uh, you know, we were talking before we turned on the, the recording about a moment in your life recently where you had to respond to crisis. You know, a person in mental health issue and stuff like that. And um, they do try to set you up for that a little bit in seminary. But to, to be in the room, you know, and to, to hold that person's hand or to respond to the unexpected you can't really learn that in seminary and the the other main thing i would say to a seminarian is um, it's all day every day it never stops it's all day every day there's i remember you know little scenarios in seminary like oh imagine this in your future you know you're gonna have a a youth minister who i don't know does something inappropriate says says something that a parent is upset about okay, how would you respond to that, you know? And so you kind of picture it when you're sitting there in your seminary class. And then, you know, fast forward five or 10 years later when you're in ministry. Yeah, that happens at nine o'clock. And then at 10 o'clock, some other major thing happens. And then 11 o'clock, you know, somebody dies. And then and at 12 o'clock, you get news that uh, someone just had their baby. And it's like all day, every day. In seminary, it felt like, oh, this might happen once in my week or month, you know? And then, especially at a church like this, where there's so many people, um, there's, life just happens and it's constant. It's like, what am I going to write my sermon? I, I'm responding to all these things and managing staff and casting vision. Um, I got to hole up somewhere and just get in the word. And so that's what I would say is buckle your seatbelt because it's all day, every day. Great. Good to know, right? <laughs> Going into that. Yep. Um, what role, if any, do you think the church should play in spreading the gospel and in addressing the needs of the larger community? So I think what I'm hearing in the question is, is the classic, you know, word and deed. Is it, do we emphasize word or do we emphasize deed? And the best book I've read on this is Tim Keller's Generous Justice, where he's, he, he, exposes the folly of, of um, going too far in either direction. So the conservative or the evangelical church, they focus primarily on the word. You know, they go out in the streets, <clears throat> proclaim the gospel, tell people Jesus loves them. You know, and the people in the liberal church or the mainline church, they would never say that. They'd never go out in the street corner and, and say Jesus saves. But they're going to be the ones in the soup kitchen or the homeless shelter, and they're going to be doing all this deed stuff. And in the book, Keller exposes that um, it's got to be both. It's got to be both. And there's no battle between the two ideas. If you look at, again, if you look at the apostles in, in Acts and in the Gospels and, and in the epistles, they're doing both all the time. 
you know, they're healing in Jesus' name. You know, that, that's both right there. It's a deed and the word. Um, so I agree with Keller's assessment. It's a false dichotomy to want to try to emphasize one over the other. It's hard to pull off both, but it is our calling to do both proclamation and service at the same time. Now, you have to be wise, right? You can't just march in and say, I'm giving you this plate of rice because I'm a Christian and therefore I want you to convert. You know, you can't just come in like that. There's moments, there's seasons maybe where you just love someone. You know you're doing it in Jesus' name and it's only revealed later um, that his name, you know, and and the message of the gospel. But you can't eliminate one for the other. It's got to be both hand in hand. And do you think um, we do that here at Sandwich Church? I think this church is a great example of that. I really do. I mean, we have a strong missions um, committee and effort that's both local, regional, and global. You know, it's it's quarter million dollars a year. And it's not just the money. It's sending people. It's, you know, these are people that we're helping support in India and right here in Connecticut. And, you know, we're working on the human trafficking issue right here in Connecticut. Um, so we're doing lots of service. We have Compassion Outreach Ministries, people right here in Greenwich who need help. You know, we have Bridgeport Rescue Mission. We have the Mobile Kitchen. We have so many ways of serving. Um, but also, and obviously, we proclaim the gospel here more than once a week. You know, like every Bible study, we have 20 Bible studies. We have Wednesday nights. We have three services every Sunday during the school year. There's gospel proclamation constantly. Uh, but there's also tons and tons and tons of service. You know, there are people out there right now who have gotten restoration ministries, you know, who are living in a place of, of their own where they were homeless because of the ministries here at Sam's Church. So there's, I can point to tons of material examples of people getting served and helped. And I can point to tons of examples of the gospel being proclaimed and tons of examples of a blend of the two. So I actually think we're doing a great job of that here. I'm not patting myself on the back because this was really in, in, in motion before I ever arrived here. I've just helped, you know, not get in the way of it. Great. Maybe some, a reason why we continue to see flourishing in the church of having that evangelical component but yet missional as well definitely and and serving not only the formation of our own but also going out and and serving those that's great what in your estimation are the major issues facing the christian community today well you know the world is changing at least here in the in the west Uh, the world is, is um going through a period of disruption and fluctuation. Um, I think we've experienced a generational cultural revolution. You know, you think about the word revolution, if you picture a wheel um, spinning a whole rotation, um, that's when you know a revolution has taken place when one generation ago, if something's at the top of the wheel and now it's at the bottom, and if something's at the bottom of the wheel and now it's at the top, for example, a generation ago, you know, if you were to mention um, same-sex people, same-sex attracted people or gay people, you'd laugh about it. I remember Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live when I was a kid in the 90s, it'd be like someone who'd come, come out who was gay on the show and the whole audience would laugh, right? It was kind of a joke, right? So you picture them at the bottom of that wheel. Well, now, one generation later, the gay community is super celebrated and you get in a lot of trouble if you laughed at a gay person. Now they're at the top of that wheel. So that indicates that there's been a revolution. There's been a turning of that wheel culturally and so this should not surprise the church 
you know, the church has existed for 2,000 years. It's gone through a lot of cultural revolutions, and yet it continues to grow. Um, I get frustrated when I hear Christians um, who are insecure and anxious about the survival of the church through our changing culture. I'm like, the church is going to outlast this revolution, and it's going to still be here for the next time culture has goes through one of these revolutions. Um, so, but the one I just mentioned that that's certainly an issue that the church is having to deal with. You know, the one about um, same-sex marriage. You know, certainly that affects ministers because they have to make decisions. Am I going to perform these ceremonies in our sanctuary? That's a big deal that a lot of pastors have to think about and congregations have to deal with. Denominations are dividing over that issue. Um, but there are other issues too. You know, it's um, issues of um, poverty, um, you know, uh, income disparity, um, a changing um, definition of what's true, you know, what's real, the classic postmodern situation that we're in people have been lately calling it a post-truth environment you know we're like your truth is your truth and my truth is mine and now we're seeing the ultimate bad fruit of that politically you know when your truth is just i watch fox news and this person watches cnn and we have a totally different view of the facts and we completely demonize the other um well that's the ultimate end of postmodern thinking if you think about it if your truth is yours and mine is mine we're going to end up being enemies Sorry to say, but that's where postmodernism leads. And so for a pastor or a Christian to stand up and say, I've got this ancient book that I think is the truth. You know, someone else can say, well, that's your truth, and therefore you're my enemy. Well, that puts us in an awkward position as Christians for us to say, no, this is actually the ultimate objective truth, universal truth. Uh, so that's an issue that we Christians really are having to face right now. Is what is our voice in the postmodern context? Mm-hmm. And how do we stand on truth claims uh, in a post-truth environment? Right. And bring that to the community, right? How, yep. <laughs> what does that look like? Yeah, those are some, definitely, I think, you just you know hit everything that uh, I hear our church talking about of you know, looking for support and wisdom and discernment of, you know, how do I approach my neighbor, mm-hmm. you know, who might fall in some of those categories, and how do I have a conversation with them so that not to isolate or mm-hmm. drive more divisiveness between us, but to, you know, try to bring them in mm-hmm. to um, the message of the gospel and, and be open to it. Yeah. So our last question for this interview is, what makes you most helpful, I'm sorry, what makes you most hopeful about the future of the Christian church? Well, it says in the Bible that the church is eternal. Church is everlasting. And that is my primary source of hope in the church, is what Jesus said about it. You know, this beautiful, wonderful metaphor in the New Testament that Jesus, in some unthinkable way, is going to be our bridegroom and we're going to be his bride and we're going to join together for all of eternity. And he's going to present us. This is I'm going to have goosebumps thinking about it. It says he's going to present us before the throne of the Father, spotless and you know, without blemish and perfect. And so that's the that's where Jesus is taking the church. So if that's not a hopeful thought, I don't know what is. That's where he's bringing us. You know, every member of his church is is moving toward that ultimate end. 
which is you know harmony and beauty and togetherness with our creator no matter what you know and the people who were being martyred in the first century and the people who are being murdered right now in places in the middle east they're joining with that eternal beautiful you know relationship um and that's where we're headed as well so if opposition comes against us i don't lose any of my hope you know i I said this a couple times already but i get frustrated and impatient when i see christian leaders totally freaking out about power structures in the united states you know like we need to get back in power you know and i'm like no we have all the power we need it's a different kind of power and um we're heading in a direction that can't be changed you know no matter who's in no matter who's in the white house no matter who's um coming against me or even my family i haven't lost hope because i know where i'm going know where we're all headed Uh, that's the best way i can think to answer that question is our eternal hope is my hope for the church no program you know no new leader um it's where we're headed and i stand on the 2000 years of the fact that this movement has never stopped growing. So why would it stop today? It's kind of waning a little bit here in the United States, but go to China and go to find a house church, you know, go to South America and see the kingdom exploding. So I look around Christianity and I see nothing but hope. Yeah, absolutely. And I, feel like that message comes very clear through Stanwich Church and is how, you know, the hope that I have as well within me. So praise God. Yeah. Well, thank you, Nathan, You're for welcome. taking the time to do this interview. It was really enlightening for me. And um, I have so many more questions, but <laughs> go on, if you have any follow up, you know, while we're sitting here, go for it. Well, it's just more, um, you know, each one of the questions that you asked, I probably would have had, you know, three more questions for it. But without the inspiration of this interview, it wouldn't um, have necessarily spurred me to be considered of that. And just thinking about how much church history does impact, like the understanding it and studying of it. What you've helped me see today, too, is just um, the application of that as we move forward, you know, into the future and, and leading the church and... Um, just some of the opportunities of that and what we can learn in applying it to it. So Praise thank God. you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Real, real pleasure.